so I told B today, I was like, I think I'm changing my last will and testament to include endocannibalism. Mm -hmm. I was like, when I die. Everybody eat me? Yes. I want my friends and my family to eat me. Yeah, get a nice little cutlet. (laughs) Yeah, A little pork chop. Hey, this is Nicola. This is Savannah checking in. And we are two blunt broads. We are talking about strange and unusual methods of burial. Hmm. There was so much stuff I wanted to cover that I feel like this is going to have to be like a series. Yeah. Burial trees I want to talk about. There's Mm -hmm. something called the Pillar of Silence that I really wanted to work in here, but I just didn't have the space for it. And I will say at the very top of this that some of this might be verbatim from Wikipedia because I could not find a better way to say it because as, as it's kind of hard to word these things much in, uh, as I would love to know everything about archaeology and science mm-hmm. and biochemistry like I just don't yeah I just don't and I'm gonna say a lot of things that I don't know how to pronounce and I'm gonna say I'm wrong and if you want to come at me that's cool I'll give you my address I know how to fight I don't but I will fight thank you So I think I'm going to start with my one that was my most favorite on this entire list. And that is the practice of endocannibalism. All righty. Start it off with that. Starting off strong. (laughs) So endocannibalism, as is kind of indicative by the name, um, is the practice of cannibalism in one's own locality or community. But the phrase has also become common to describe the consumption of relics in a mortuary context aka eating your dead it's really not great it can make you really 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 sick i imagine and i'm gonna go into the details of what happens when you're infected with kuru which is the virus that you get in your brain from eating um human brain matter Okay, is that only okay? That's only from eating brain matter because I've yeah. always thought about you know I've been biting my nails since I was like four years old, and like no, it's only know. from human flesh. And I go I go into really 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 excruciating detail. You're gonna be like stop talking about proteins in the brain. Okay, but I'm not gonna stop <laughs> talking about them. So the oh god, this is when I'm gonna start fucking up translations or not translations but pronunciations pronunciations. the amahaka would pick particles of bones out of the ashes of cremation fires and grind them up with corn and drink them as a kind of gruel as a celebration of the person that had passed Mm -hmm. as kind of including them their remains within their own body so therefore living on within them which i think is really beautiful So, 
the I'm just going to talk about a couple cultures that have practiced endocannibalism in the past. The Wari people in Western Brazil would compassionately roast the remains of fellow Wari people and consume them in a mortuary setting. So mortuary setting just implies that it has to do with some celebration of it. It's like a mortuary setting is when someone has passed and you are paying respects. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to say celebration because that's implying certain things that don't need to be implied because mortuary setting is just dead person, Mm -hmm. other people. Right. So ideally in the Wari culture, when they would compassionately roast the remains of their fellow man and um, eat them, the people that were consuming the body would eat the entire corpse. And if any part of the corpse was rejected, it would be considered directly offensive to the family members of the person that's passed. My favorite group to practice endocannibalism is, and you might have heard of this if you've taken an archaeology or anthropology 101 class in college, but the Yanomamo. There's a really famous book that was published called The Yanomamo, and it's about the tribe. They're from South America, and they had a lot of practices that were anthropologically studied in the 60s, so it's like canon for modern anthropology. But anyway, back to it. The Yanomamo would consume ground-up bones and ashes of cremated kinsmen's in an act of mourning. So the one thing that kind of links this, like, eating of either the whole body or the eating of the ground-up bones and ashes is that they are generally perceived not to be derived from a need for protein or food, mm-hmm. but instead a need for some spiritual right, right. outcome. Yeah, it's a um, ceremonial type. Ceremonial type, metaphorical type consumption. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now the question on your mind from the very beginning of this are what are the medical implications of eating your dead? Yeah. You may ask. Yeah. Kuru. Okay. Kuru is caused by something called prions that are found in humans. Prions are misfolded proteins. Mm -hmm. So they're proteins that are just folded up wrong. And they have the ability to transmit their misfolded shape onto normal variants of the same protein. So they go find a Uh healthy protein and they turn it into their weird fucked up folded shape. And then what happens? You lose your goddamn mind. Okay. And you get really, really sick. Hmm. Really, really sick. Just like physically like. So it's like a brain flu. Mm. I talked to my dad about this because he's a doctor and he, I was like, is this going to make sense to people if I say all these big words that I've read on Wikipedia? And he was like, yeah, so essentially you can describe it as a virus. He said people understand viruses right now um, Mm -hmm. because of COVID. It's a virus that infects your brain. Uh, It's like a flu He said, if the flu turned your brain into Marmite and you got it from eating your best friend's brain. And then he put in parentheses, BFB. (laughs) BFB. (laughs) That's cute. So prions characterize several fatal and transmissible neurodegenerative diseases in humans and other animals. All known prion diseases in mammals affect the structure of the brain or other neural tissue. They're all progressive 
They have no known effective treatment and they are always fatal. So the term kuru derives from the foray word kuria or guria, which means to shake. So one of the number one symptoms of kuru is body tremors. Mm-hmm. Kuru itself means trembling. It's known as the laughing sickness due to the pathological burst of out outbursts of laughter, which are symptoms of the disease. Oh no. Yeah. Uh-huh. You might you might actually fucking have no. it. No, no, Shit, you laugh should, all the time. We should both be worried. <laughs> we should. I'm cackling right now. I can't stop. Oh my god. Oh my god. Um so Kuru's really bad. It sounds really rough. I don't think I'll be eating a BFB anytime soon. I don't want to eat a BFB. Yeah, so prions, anyway, back to those little weird fucked up foldy proteins. Human prion diseases come in sporadic, genetic, and infectious forms. Kuru was the first infectious human prion disease discovered ever. Wow. And it was discovered through the 4A people of Papua New Guinea. Who? Uh, yeah, I know the people of Papua New Guinea. I have studied. Very yes, interesting. very interesting. Yeah. They would consume the bodies of the deceased in order to return the life force of that individual to the home. It was found within the Foray people that Kuru was eight to nine times more prevalent in women and children than it was in men at its peak because while the men of the village would take the choice cuts of meat, women and children would eat the rest of the body, including the brain, where the prion particles were particularly concentrated. God. Yeah, so they would make the kids and the women eat, like, the balls and the brain, and that's where all the foldy proteins are, and so women and children would get sick faster. And they're just laughing and foaming at the mouth and... Throwing up and then dying. Throwing up and then dying. So, historical researchers suggest that the Kuru epidemic may have originated in 1900 from a single individual who lived on the edge of the foray territory, who is thought to have spontaneously developed some form of disease related to prion disease. Oral history records that cannibalism began within foray in the late 19th century, so late 1800s. Um, and recent research at University College London identified a gene that protects against the prion disease by studying the 4A people. So these people have literally built a gene into their their mm-hmm. evolution to protect against these prions, which is really fucking cool because yeah. currently there is no treatment and cure for Kuru, but there are numerous programs being funded by universities and national institutes, such as the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. I mean, are people getting this without eating other people? Or... Uh, no. Okay. Well, well, yes. Find a cure so we can keep eating them. <laughs> I'm trying to figure this out. I here. don't know the answer to that question, actually. I, I will answer questions like I know the answer, yeah. but yeah, sometimes, yeah. Um, <laughs> This institute, the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, is currently funding research into the genetic and cellular processes behind the development and transmission of TSE diseases. So, yeah, the transmission of them, they can be transmitted between non-human eating people, I guess. Whether or not endocannibalism was commonplace throughout much of human prehistory remains controversial. A team led by lifelong investigator of Kuru, Michael Alpers, found that genes 
that protect against similar prion diseases were widespread, suggesting that endocannibalism could have once been common around the world. So they found out that these genes that mm. protect against Kuru-type diseases are inside of all of us now, nice. which means that we had to have some point adapted them yeah. to survive, so we were all probably we were all eating our dead, yeah. Yeah. Um, which that's really cool to me. I love that because it's so metaphorical. Like, if I'm going to live on within you guys, you got to literally take that literally, yeah. or I'm going to be so fucking the idea upset. idea itself is, you know, cool, um, intriguing. I mean, the fact that we all have the like it's that it used to be that common i guess yeah a genetic... i like how this is like burial methods but it, it, we're burying it in, in ourselves yes <laughs> yeah burying it i guess i mean how do we get rid of our dead like yeah but a genetic study with a range of authors published by the university college of london in 2009 declared evidence of a powerful episode of natural selection in recent humans this evidence is found that the 127V polymorphism, a mutation which protects against the Kuru disease, is found in brains. Nice. In simpler terms, it would appear the Kuru disease has affected all humans to the extent that we have specialized immune responses to it. That's incredible. I, that's really cool to know yes I, so i don't think you need facts, to worry I'm gonna about spit out when it's inappropriate yeah <laughs> did you know you yeah. are immune to kuru yeah <laughs> um however a study drawing from hundreds of resources in 2013 claims further that 127v derives from an ancient and widespread cannibalistic practice not related to kuru specifically but kuru like epidemics which appeared around the time of the extinction of the Neanderthals who coexisted with humans. This allows the suggestion that cannibalistic practices may have caused diseases which killed the Neanderthals but not the humans because of the 127V resistance gene. So, that might be a, have been, like, the adaptation that saved us. Okay. From extinction. Because the Neanderthals didn't develop this adaptation, and it's presumed they died of a cannibalistic type oh my god disease yeah wow isn't that crazy science is so fucking cool history history so famous cases of endocannibalism Uh uh-huh donner party oh matt me duh uh well yeah the donner party Mm -hmm. yeah maybe well maybe Mm-hmm. I read a little bit about the Donner Party. Like, I know the story, but I don't know, like, how much of it's true. Because I know that the survivors were, like, mostly the children. And, like, their memories can be kind of spotty. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this other guy that I found in my research named Boone Helm, who I absolutely want to do an episode on. But he was an American mountain man, an Old West gunfighter, and a serial killer known as the Kentucky Cannibal. Little cowboy out there. Mm-hmm. He gained his nickname for his opportunistic and unrepentant proclivity for consuming human flesh. Nice. Usually in survival situations, though instances of killing people for their meat unprovoked were documented. Mm-hmm. So that's the end of endocannibalism, which I think is... That was pretty fucking cool. Really fucking cool, yeah. and it's how I want to die. Yeah. So next on the list of interesting, wacky, and unusual ways of burying people, we have something called a Tibetan sky burial. Okay. 
This one is really cool. This is my second runner-up as to if I die tomorrow and you guys don't want to eat me, Mm -hmm. give me a sky burial. Okay, let's hear about it. So, sky burial is a funeral practice in which a human corpse is placed on a mountaintop to decompose while exposed to the elements or to be eaten by scavenging animals, especially carry-on birds. Okay. Probably the bird community. Yeah. It's good for the birds. It's good for the vultures. Yeah. It's not. They yeah. actually have made it illegal in so many places because it's not good for the birds. <laughs> That's why. Developing a taste for human flesh is not ideal. You know, actually, when you put it that way, uh, maybe that's best. So, the majority of Tibetan people and many Mongols adhere to Vajrayana, Vajrayana. Buddhism which teaches the transmitigation of souls. So there's no need to preserve the body it is, as it is now an empty vessel. Mm-hmm. So your soul's passed on, your body is just your body. Right. The birds may eat it, or nature may cause it to decompose. And the function of the sky burial is simply to dispose of the remains in as generous a way as possible. Yeah, I mean, I kind of get it. It's just giving it back to nature. Yeah, it's. I um, mean, it's exactly like burying someone in a wooden coffin. Like, I feel like it really wouldn't hurt the birds unless like a ton of people were doing it. Well, there's a whole process to this, and because it is a ritual, every single part of the human body would be... Like, bodies weren't just left on a mountaintop mm-hmm. in this burial ritual. Oh. The bodies were systematically cut into pieces so that they would be easier for the birds to consume and left on the mountaintop on special places, special rocks, like ceremonial features. um, Those would be like rocks that birds liked. Yeah, big flat rocks Mm -hmm. that could kind of just act as like a platter. Um... We dosing out the little servants for the birdies. Yeah, the dosing out the servants of birdies. In much of Tibet and Qinghai, the ground is too hard and too rocky to dig a grave. And due to the scarcity of fuel and timber for cremation, sky, burial, sky burials were typically more practical than the traditional Buddhist practice of cremation. So the ground was too rocky to dig into, and burial was hard, so this was just more practical. In the past, cremation was limited to high llamas and other dignitaries, but modern technology and difficulties with sky burial have led to an increased use of cremation by commoners in Mongolia and Tibet. Other nations that performed air burials, which are another name for sky burials, were the Caucasus nations of Georgians, mm-hmm. Abkhazians, um, and I can't say that one. Adyghe, A D Y G H E, people, okay. um, in which they in their burial culture they would put the corpse into the hollow tree trunk mm-hmm. and let it kind of get taken by the tree okay the tibetan sky burials appear to have evolved from ancient practices of defleshing corpses as discovered in archaeological finds in the region 
So these practices most likely came out of practical considerations. Like I said before, the ground was too rocky and hard to dig a grave and they didn't have enough timber to cremate people en masse. Mm -hmm. They could also be related to more ceremonial practices to the suspected sky burial evidence found at Gobelki Tempe, which is an archaeological site that was active... 11,500 years before now. Oh. There is also suspected sky burial evidence at Stonehenge, which Ooh. before present, 14, or sorry, uh, 4,500 years before present, so before now. Right. Most of Tibet is above the tree line, and the scarcity of timber makes cremation economically unfeasible. Additionally, the subsurface interment is difficult since the active layer is not more than a few centimeters deep with solid rock or permafrost underlying the surface. I mean, what else are they supposed to do? Exactly. Like, I mean, these things just, what we do with our dead just really depends on where we are. Even in the U.S., like, think about the differences in cemeteries between even here in New Orleans or here in New York. Like, the way that we have to dispose of people's bodies is so regionally specific. So, sky burial was initially treated as a primitive superstition and sanitation concern by the communist governments of both the PRC and Mongolia. Both states closed many temples, and China banned the practice completely from the Cultural Revolution of the late 1960s until the 1980s. Mm. During this period, sky burials were considered among the four olds, which was the umbrella term used by communists to describe the anti-proletarian customs, cultures, and ideas. So anything that was against communism, essentially, was one of the four olds. As a result of these policies, many corpses would simply be buried or thrown into rivers. Many families believed the souls of these people would never escape purgatory and became ghosts. I mean, a river burial doesn't sound that much different like you're just still going out to nature instead of on yeah. a mountain it's just in the water i think there's just it just wasn't in line with their cultural idea of cultural ideal of what was respectful of the body i guess so yeah yeah, yeah. so even though it's been offered some protection in recent years, the practice continues to diminish for a number of reasons, including restrictions on its practice near urban areas and diminishing numbers of vultures in rural districts. Mm-hmm. So vultures are dying off. It's hard to get them to eat the bodies. Tibetan practice holds that the yak carrying the body to the char- charnel grounds should be set free after his task is completed making the rite much more expensive than a service at the crematorium. So people don't want to give up their yaks, so they're opting to cremate their dead. Okay. I get it. Like, yeah. But I want a yak to carry my body to the top <laughs> of the mountain where everyone eats it. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, then yaks the yak are, to be the, set free. Yaks are valuable. I they guess. are, I guess. This has been fun. I, I had a great time tonight, Savannah. Yeah, this was a fun one. I'm excited to go get some hot dogs. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait to eat some disembodied penises. <laughs> 
right, everybody, thank you for joining us. Yeah, follow us on Instagram at Two Blunt Broads Podcast. Mm -hmm. Twitter at Two Blunt Broads. Find our Patreon, www.patreon.com backslash Two Blunt Broads. If you donate to the Patreon, you get special access to our Instagram and Facebook close friends feeds. You get... A special series that I'm working on right now that's going to come out very soon. Yes, it's an entire special series. It's going to be... It's intense. I'm really excited. <laughs> I'm really excited. It's taking up a lot of my emotional energy right yes. now. <laughs> um, but it's going to... It's in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, Should we say what it is real quick? Yeah. It's yeah. letters to and from death row inmates. Yes. So it's going to be... I'm Who talking... have agreed that it's okay that we... Read the yeah. letters on the podcast, yeah, of course. No. And, um, I've gotten really close with these guys. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. They... I did a few years ago. Yeah. There's... We'll be talking and, like, I forget kind of who they are, mm-hmm. like, and what they've done. Because right. I made the big mistake of not, like, Googling these guys before I wrote to them. Mm-hmm. And then Googling them later and being like, oh, oh. They did that. That's right? who I'm talking to. Yeah, that's who is mailing letters to my house. <laughs> yeah, no, not to my house. But um, yeah. it's just really cementing how I feel about the death penalty. And I'm not going to pull any punches or hold my opinions because this is my fucking podcast. And if you want to say your opinions on the death penalty, then get your own fucking podcast. Mm-hmm. But the death penalty is wrong. Like, it's just wrong to fucking kill people because they did or did not do something mm-hmm. like it's just fucked yeah. it's, it's it's such sad. a fucked system it's that sad. we live in and it it's in so many ways it's so sad but <sighs> i want i'm eager to share these men's stories with you and like i think my main goal in talking to these guys has been like tell me what happened to you like mm-hmm. tell me i don't care about what you did but tell me, like, what happened to you? I like hearing about who they are. I talked to this one guy, and he's um, a painter, and sent me some photos of his paintings. It's just super cool, because I'm a painter also, and I was able to, like, discuss that with him. Yeah, we talk about music a lot. We talk about, like, movies. He just watched uh, Avatar. The Blue People one? Yeah, the blue people. That's one. my favorite. So Fucking love that shit. The Eat guys, it up. Avatar Two's coming out soon, by the way. I've never seen it. The guys in Florida <laughs> get iPads on death row. They're not okay. iPads, but they're tablets, yeah. and they have not access to the internet, but they have access to like an email address where they can send and receive email oh. for the cost of stamps. So it's like ten cents a letter, and so I always send my letter like you can include a stamp. So I do that and they just usually bounce it back to me. But I'm waiting to hear from a couple other dudes that I'm really interested in talking to. But yeah, that's coming along. We'll record those soon because I've got plenty, mm-hmm. plenty to say. I've got it all. Looking forward to receiving more listener emails as well. Please write in your listener emails. This is the best part of my day. Yes. I love it. It's special. We love getting those. Um, so our email address is twobluntbroads at gmail.com. If you need anything, if you just want to talk, 
Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Yeah. Please do reach out. Reach out. Hit us up on Instagram. Hit us up on Facebook. Hit us up on... Whatever. Whatever. Mm-hmm. You do not have to know me to hit me up. Hit me up on Venmo. Please hit me up on Venmo. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Taking tips. No, Taking I'm just tips. joking. Um, but yeah, we love you guys. Appreciate you always. Thanks have for listening. Week. Have a good week. Bye. Bye.